Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, Marjan Satrapi's widely hailed graphic novel turned movie, Persepolis, uses cinematic techniques borrowed from German Expressionism and Italian Neorealism in stark black and white to capture vast emotional and political landscapes as it follows the author's young self through the Iranian Revolution and her emigration abroad. Her Oscar-nominated, Conjury Prize-winning animated film features the voice of Catherine Deneuve, Author Reza Aslan sits down with Satrapi to discuss Iran and the seeming absurdities of life in the Islamic Republic. The two also examine what it means to live in exile and, finally, the fine art of portraying the complexity of human life. Recorded before a live audience at Harmony Gold Theater as part of the Sokolo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Reza Aslan to introduce Marjan Satrapi. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming. It's my pleasure to introduce to you the uh, creative mind behind this wonderful, wonderful film and graphic uh, novel. Marjan Satrapi, of course, as many of you know, is, is Iranian and French. Uh, she's a contemporary graphic artist and illustrator. She was educated at Tehran Azad University, and she currently lives in Paris. Her best-selling comic series, Persepolis, came in two volumes. The first one was released in France in the year 2000, and of course we got to see it here in the United States in 2003, and it has been an international bestseller ever since. The film version of that has been nominated for far, far too many awards for me to mention. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Marjan Satrapi. Marjan, Khoshomadid. Welcome to Los Angeles, or as some of us like to refer to it, Terangelis. There is obviously a very, very large uh, Iranian diaspora here. Of course, many of them huge, huge fans of yours. It's very interesting. You know, over the last few years, especially in the United States, there has been dozens upon dozens of, of memoirs uh, written primarily by Iranian women about life in Iran. It seems to me pretty much every 30 minutes a new memoir gets published by an Iranian woman. But... What's fascinating about yours is that because it is in the form of a graphic novel, it has almost reinvigorated the in, entire genre in, in a way. And, and obviously, this, it's, part of this is because of your talent as an artist and as an illustrator, but do you feel that it, it freed you up in a way to tell your story both in words and in drawings that, that you know, just simply writing a, a book or a memoir would not be able to do? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say good evening to everybody, and I just came in, so I'm a little bit bizarre. I am a little bit like if I was drunk, so if I say... But I'm not. I'm just tired, so if I say strange things, please forgive me. First of all, that is my way of expressing myself. I come from painting, originally, but, you know, comics, that is something about popular art that I always loved, 
And, you know, since I didn't want to make painting, for the same reason I didn't want to make literature, neither. I'm a very lousy writer because I take myself too much for serious. I said to myself, now you have to write something, and that is nothing worse than the moment that you say to yourself that you should write something. The fact of making it with the images also, you know, it made it much more available for everybody. It makes a very obvious relationship with people because, uh, you know, drawing is the way that human beings reinvent the nature the way he sees it, and it's the first language of the human being, you know, before writing, human being used to draw. So we have a very obvious and immediate relationship with the drawing that we don't have it with any other media, you know. For instance, if you draw the face of a sad man, there is not one culture in the world that would look at it and say, oh, this, no, this guy is very happy. That doesn't exist. But yeah, I can have so once in a while problem with the words, you know. Actually, there are some words that they don't exist in some languages. Like in French, for example, we don't have the word fun because in France we are not fun. We have irony, <laughs> sarcasm, but fun, no. <laughs> you know, a word like pudeur, then you don't have it in English because, you know, the English people, they don't have the pudeur that the French they have. So, you know, there are things like that that don't exist. And the drawing, it made it much more obvious, actually. Was it also obvious for you as you were working on the book that this could make a wonderful film, that it could be translated for the screen very easily? Oh, no, no, I, I, I still don't believe it because I was the one who always said that that was the worst idea in the world to, to make a movie, especially out of the comic books because since, you know, we have the frames that are ready, you can have the tendency of wanting, you know, put the camera and film the frame one after the other and finally find yourself with the movie, which is not true because there are two different media. I mean, just, I, you know, when you read the comics... Unlike literature, where you have to imagine everything. But, you know, the, the reader of a comic book is always active because between two frames you have to imagine the movement yourself. So you are very, very active reading it. When you watch a movie in a theater, you are very passive. So even your relationship with the medium is not the same. So it was a very hard thing to do. Plus, you know, I made the books. Like, for four years, you have to think about the story in one way. And then, you know then rethink about the story for three years in another way. But it was, in reality, you know, even today, I don't have any good reason, you know, to have made this movie. I, can, I really don't. The thing was that as an artist, suddenly in my life, a friend of mine who wanted to become a producer told me, oh, we can make this movie, you know. And, you know, I was saying, yes, but I wanted animation in black and white, hand-drawn. You know, the studio should be in the center of Paris. I want Catherine Deneuve. I want this and want that. And he said yes to all of it. And then, you know, <laughs> then I had to make it. Because you cannot just ask and, you know, just don't give any response at the end. But for us, for Vincent and I, you know, we didn't know actually what we were accepting. We just dive into the water. And once we were in the, into the water, we were like, we don't know how to swim. So, so you know, that was, that was a very long thing to do. And now, you know, that I like the movie and, you know, I think that the result is good and all of that, I can invent 250 good reasons to have made it. But in reality, there was none. I felt like doing it, and I'm happy I have done it. Well, we're happy you did it, too. <laughs> of course, the thing about memories are, in a way, the more you tell them, the more they change. And so there must have been 
some things that change, not just the way that you remembered something, but the way that you actually express those memories from the book to the, to the film. How did you deal with that? Well, you know, in a book, you have all the time and the space to do whatever you want. You can make a thousand page of book. Nowadays, you cannot make like Eric von Stroheim eight hours. Nobody is going to watch it anymore. So, you know, you have a certain amount of time that you can make a movie. So, you know, we had really to choose a, a, a direction, actually, to, for this movie. At the time that we started writing this movie, that was three years ago, I was in a very nostalgic period of my life because that was five years that I didn't go back to Iran. I was missing my country, etc. So, you know, the whole structure of this movie that is based on a flashback, you know, that in the beginning that is this woman going into this airport, doesn't have any ticket to go back. So, you know, she just sit and remember. And every time that she comes back, we know that it's... End of a period. This structure was made because of this nostalgia. The turning point of the story became the exile because this is typically a movie made by an exiled person. The fact of the, the, that that is in French, that is somebody who remember another life that she has had before. All of that. So everything leads to this exile, and this exile actually justify whatever will happen next. So that that was the direction that we have to choose. Because otherwise, if you want to put 16 years of life in one movie, you can find yourself with five movies in one, which is a disaster. Because then we want to say too many stuff. Of course, there were things that, you know, that, that broke my heart. You know, like, for example, my friend Kia, you know, who went to the war, who became handicapped after the war. And I really wanted to tell the joke that he say in the book. Because that shows that when it becomes too much, you don't have any other way than laughing because otherwise you, you, you die, you know, you cannot complain. But at the same time, you know, having it suddenly appearing, saying a joke and disappearing is not possible, you know, you have to. The character in the movie, you have to, they have to evaluate with you, they have to be with you, and you cannot just bring them, you know, just to say a joke and then they are not there anymore. So there were things like that that, of course, broke my heart to, to take them away. But, you know, my heart was many times broken, actually, when I was making the book also. Because, you know, when I made the book, of course, everybody was saying to me, oh, we know everything about your life. But believe me, if 16 years of my life could be in 400 pages of comics, that means only one thing, that I had a miserable life. <laughs> and my life was not miserable at all, so... We're, you know, on the radio right now, and probably you can't tell the punchline of the joke, but why don't you tell us the joke? Well, I mean, I don't know what... I mean, the radio is no problem to say that people, they have been killed by bombing. It's no problem. But as soon as you say shit, you know, it's a problem. I don't know. <laughs> For me, the bigger problem is when people die. But anyway, so the story is the story of this guy, so... Who, who, who is actually making the war, and you know, suddenly a bomb goes directly on his head and he's exploded in 300 pieces. So they put him all together, they sew him together, and he become a man. And as an Iranian tradition, once he and his family, they go and ask the hand of a lady. So comes the nuptial night, the night that they, they are going to discover each other, and the guy gets naked, and actually um, his thing is there. On his head. <laughs> so the girl, she's like, no, 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 I don't want you. You are not normal. And the guy is like, look, it functions. And <laughs> the woman, she doesn't want to hear. The guy say again, he say, look, you know, you know he, no, 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 I don't want it. And at the end, the guy is very bored and he said, lick my ass. So that was... <laughs> 
That was the joke. You're listening to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. This is Sokalo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. This Tuesday, March 11th, Sokalo presents award-winning Colombian-born journalist Silvana Paternostro, who visits Sokalo to present an intimate portrait of Colombia's 40-year-old war. And on Thursday, March 20th, it's Grammy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated composer Michael Giacchino, who wrote the score for The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Admission to all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan in a moment. Stay tuned to Sokolo Radio. I'm John Beaupre for Larry Mantle. On the next Air Talk, what happens when the term race card is used and how does bluffing about bias affect race relations? Richard Thompson Ford is the author of The Race Card, How Bluffing About Bias Makes Race Relations Worse. Also, the forensics of airplane crashes. Larry's guest, George B. Bell, gives his take on air tragedies. They're the subject of his book, Beyond the Black Box. It's all up on the next Air Talk at 10 a.m. here on 89.3 KPCC. KPCC brings you in-depth news without commercials. You make that possible when taking the step from KPCC listener to KPCC contributing member. Take that step today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Next time on The World. Here they come again. There was a band that we've forgotten. They were a good-looking group, good and wholesome, and they made records which people still love to this day. The Dave Clark Five was London's answer to the four lads from Liverpool. They're about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We remember the Dave Clark Five and update the news next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. That was the kind of joke that we had to say in a country like ours to deal with the, with the horror of war, because you don't have it any other way. It's not a question of mockery, of course, but... It is the absurdity of the whole situation. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I love about the joke, is that it says a lot about the way that Iranians deal with the troubles and the hardships and the conflicts that have, that have plagued that country for the last 30 years. What's really wonderful about the way that you deal with your life story is that, in a way, the changes that you go through are very much emblematic of the changes that Iran has gone through over the last three decades. Um, Absolutely. 
It's almost as though Iran is just in this constantly changing, constantly evolving. No one knows what's going to happen or, or where it's going to go. Um, and a lot of your book, of course, is about this identity crisis that you have being Iranian, but also living in the diaspora, being you know, living in, in Paris and trying to reconcile your, your dual identities as a European and as Iranian and then, of course, as a woman. This, to me, I think is the strength of, of the book and I think why so many people are attracted to, to your story. Well, certainly it is. I, I just, I mean, the only happiness that I have about this book, really, I mean, thank you very much for flattering me for whatever you said. <laughs> But, you know, the book, I started writing them, you know, five years after I left Iran, that was, I started writing them in 99. I needed this time to stop being angry because, of course, at the beginning when I left Iran, I was very, very, a very angry person. You know, Gandhi say, if we make eye for eye, then the whole world is going to be blind. We cannot make that. So, you know, it's up to the one who knows that aggressivity, violence, and this kind of behavior does not lead anywhere, just not to use the same language. So thanks God I had enough time to, to have this distance and not be full of hate. You're in a city, of course, that has the highest percentage of Iranian-Americans in, in the country. Of course, Iranians of all different classes and various religions and political philosophies. It's an incredibly varied, very diverse immigrant community here. But I think that what all of us have in common in one way or another is that feeling of, especially early on in the 80s, of being somewhat wary of identifying ourselves as Iranian. You know, Iranian, just the word itself sounds so menacing. You know, that's why so many people here call themselves Persian. Persian, yes. <laughs> yes. We became Persian, which is, which is odd because Persian is actually a a modern terminology for Iranian. Iranian comes from the word Ariana Vaiju, that means the memory of the Aryan, that is, the Iranian, always they call themselves Iranian, and then the Greek they called Iranian Persian, and then the whole West call, start calling Iran Persia. But Iran is much older than Persia, so, you know, like Persian means nice Iranian, and Iranian is, are the bad Iranian. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is basically the way it is. I had also this crisis, you know, when I was 16, but, you know, I was so much ashamed of myself because it was hard, you know, you know, this question that was a one-word answer for everybody, where do you come from? I come from Portugal or Spain or America or for whatever. For, for us, that was like one hour of justification that I am that, but, you know, na, na, na. It was extremely hard, you know, and in America, it, it was even harder, you know, at the time of hostage-taking. I mean, people, they were really... So that, that was the, the, this whole thing, you know. At the end, you know, I mean, you know, no matter what I will do, I mean, okay, now I am, I am French, I'm Iranian, you know, I'm married to a Swedish man, etc., etc. You know, it's something, you know, for example, my affection will always remain Iranian, my, my head, you know, my hair, my, mm -hmm. the way I look like. There are things that you cannot change, and, you know, I'm not a very nationalistic person in, in, the, in the way, yes, I love my country. But for me, you know, these people that are too patriotic, they make me think of Ku Klux Klan, you know, like, I'm proud to be white. How can you be proud to, to be white? It happens that your father and mother, they were white, and so you are white. <laughs> so, you know, how can you be proud of being American or French or whatever? I mean, it happens that you're born in a place, or so you come from this place. So there is nothing to be neither proud nor ashamed. 
we can be proud of the things that we have done or ashamed of the things that we have done. But, you know, facts, that is just facts. So I learned, you know, not to, just to be Iranian. There are great things in, in the Iranian culture. I mean, starting from their hospitality, but even the way that they are false, that, you know, in your face they're nice to you and in your back they say bad things. Like, even mm-hmm. that, I like it. You know, because... Tar off, tar off. Oh, yes, no, because in order to see a guy five minutes, I prefer that they're, you know, that they put honey in my belly instead of being angry <laughs> to me. So that, even that, I like it. And other stuff, too, of yeah, course. We, yeah, we Iranians, we have a tradition called tarof, which basically means insincere deference. It's basically lying. You know, do, would you like something to eat? No. Please. No, I can't. But Come once on, in a while, once yes. in a while. Yes, but, but I remember, you know, many years ago I was in Iran and I wanted to go and buy a pair of shoes. And so I put the shoes on and I said, so how much is it? And the guy that thought of, no, 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 it doesn't worth anything for you. I said, no, really, how much does it cost? I want to pay. And again and again, five times, six times, ten times. I said, you mean I take this pair of shoes and I get out of your shop and you don't say anything? And I said, no, no. And I took it and I went and I never paid for them. Wow. Yeah. I think that the guy never made the tarot with any woman <laughs> anymore in his life, but you know. You know, you were talking about, uh, certainly, like, uh, like you said, during the hostage crisis. I was living in Northern California there, and I spent pretty much the entire 444 days of the hostage crisis as a Mexican. Um, <laughs> which was kind of easy. easy. Yes. You know, we had the same color, and I, yes. uh, I you know, feathered my hair, learned how to break dance. Um, but... What's, what's interesting is that... started eating burritos and... I started eating, right, exactly. But when I went back to Iran, I had the same experience that you had in that suddenly I felt as though I don't really belong here either. There's, there's this strange distance in the way that I was treated by other Iranians as, as someone who had left, someone who had not stuck around. Well, and, and I, I can understand it, but the, from the second, you know, that... One leave his, his country. We always have the, the 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 place of an outsider. Always, wherever you go, because when you when you are in in the country, you have more distance than the people that are born in this country because you are not born there. So you always have more distance. But from where you come from, you always have also a distance, which is a very it's a very interesting position to have this distance because, in a way, and I always say, you know, like they say, yes, but how is it to have these two cultures, etc., etc.? I say, you know, for me, it's like sitting, you know, between two chairs. That is not very comfortable when other people, they're sitting on one chair. Mm-hmm. But I have two. So if I want to lie down, I lie down. The other people, they can't. So, you know, it has its pluses and minuses. And this position of the outsider, it pleased me, you know, it's, it's fine. Because in a way, you know, no matter where I go now, you know, I just need a hotel room and a shower, and I feel at home, and at the same time, nobody is home. Right. What's really wonderful about capturing these years in the Islamic Republic and, and your experiences of it in uh, illustrated form, in a, in, a, in a sort of comic book way, is that it allows you to really bring up the absurdities of, of life in the Islamic Republic in a way that doesn't trivialize the, the hardships there, but nevertheless shows how 
ridiculous things have come. The story that I'm thinking of, which, which I haven't been able to, to shake ever since I, I read it in your book, was in your art class when you had to draw figures. Yes, but you know, we changed it because that was this, well, that was a woman that was dressed, well, as you see in the movie. And then, you know, we say, you know, we don't see anything, you know, at least, you know, give us a man. And, you know, at least even his dress, we know that he has an arm and a leg and, you know, something, you know. And believe me, one day I was sitting, that was this guy who was actually... These are the figures you had to Yes, to, to draw. and the guy also was cleaning the school and everything. So he was standing there and I was drawing him. And one of these guardians of the school came in and he told me, why are you looking at this man? And I was like, I'm drawing him. I said, no, no, but you cannot look at this man. And I said, so that means that you want me to look at the door and draw him. And he looked at me and said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is absurd. Of course this is absurd. The whole idea that that was, I have always said it and I try to say it in the, the movie, is just creating a situation of fear. You know, it's never any ideology against it. That, you know, if you think that, for example, if a woman doesn't put a veil, her integrity is in danger that you show a little bit of hair or a little bit more, what does it change? But, you know, a little bit was tolerated and a little bit more was not tolerated. I say was because I don't know how it is today in Iran, you know. The fact is that it's not so much about the hair itself. It's that me as a person, when I go out and, you know, I have something on my head and my whole concern is that is it at the right place? Am I showing enough hair? No, 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 no. I don't think about other questions. I don't think, you know, where, where is my freedom? Do I, can I think? Can I express myself? Et cetera, et cetera, you know. So, you know, this is the situation of fear that completely cuts you, paralyzes you, and then you cannot think about other stuff. Yeah, it's a form of control. Exactly, because, you know, that everything becomes a problem. You, you want to listen to music is a problem. You want to do this. So, you know, you are paralyzed by the thing that are the normal thing of life that I'm sure that they themselves, they know that it doesn't change anything. The only thing is that if you give this freedom, then you have the time to think about something else. And this something else, we don't want them to think about something else. So, you know, that's why, you know, you know every time, you know, they were telling, talking about, you know, Oh, how difficult it was to wear the veil, etc., etc. And the veil has never been my problem. I mean, even once in a while, when I didn't have the time to wash my hair, it was kind of <laughs> easy, you know. You know, I didn't have all the time to have the fancy hair. But the veil is representative of something else. It's not because you get dressed the way you want that you necessarily have the freedom of thinking and saying what you say. But if you have the freedom of saying and thinking what you want to say, then most certainly you can wear what you want. It goes in one direction, it doesn't go. So, you know, that, that was the basic problem of Iran was there, you know, the freedom of thinking, the freedom of expression that we have since a long time. It's, you know. And yet one of the things that you illustrate so well is the fact that particularly the youth culture in Iran, which is so huge, we're, I mean, two-thirds of the population of that country under the age of 30, uh, incredibly politically sophisticated, technologically savvy, very much plugged in to, to what's going on in the world because of satellite TV and the internet. And yet they have this incredibly vibrant private life, right, that's completely separate from their public world. Of course it is completely separate, you know, and it goes even beyond the things like that. Like, you know, in Iran, we, you know, we have a country in which, for example, the women, they have half of the right of the men. I mean, this is, you know, the law. At the same time, the same women, they study two times more than the men. 
64% of the Iranian right. students are women. And I think it's a mathematical relationship between working half and studying two times more because you have to prove, you know, at the beginning you talk about all these female memoir. They have created a situation that many men, just by the fact that they are men, they're great, just because <laughs> they are male. Uh, we have to prove, you know, mm -hmm. and that goes through our education and through what we accomplish. We are not just great by, by, by the way we are born, we worth half. So we have to do extra stuff. I mean, it's even not me who say that. All the studies show that, you know, Iranian population is a very pro-Western population. This is also something, yeah, but, you know, you have this, this official image, and in a very weird way, the same official image that is the image that is showed everywhere, because that is also the image that is easy. If you start saying these people, you know, is like that, but in reality is not very much like that, it becomes complicated. Then it's extremely hard to put a name on them. Then it's extremely hard also, you know, not to declare war against them because then they become human beings, etc., etc. We want mm -hmm. information in a way that, you know, we just put it in your throat and, you know, you just swallow it. The complexity of the situation is the thing that is the most important. And that is what I have tried always. I don't know if I, 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 I did, but in the books, but also in the movie, instead of having answers, because of course I don't have any answer to give, but just try to show the complexity of the situation, that nothing is as easy as it looks like. Everywhere I go, I'm always asked this one question, which is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen, Iran? What's going to happen with this youth population? What's going to happen with the the leaders and the control? What's what do you see in your in your travels to Iran and you're talking to to your family and your friends who are still there? What do you see for the future of Iran? Well, listen, it's something is that you know. The democracy is a question of culture, you know. It's not one person that destroyed a democracy and that is not one person that created democracy. Democracy is neither a color with which you paint the wall and you have a democratic country. And it's certainly not a gift that you give to people by bombing them. All of that is, doesn't exist. It is one thing that is the biggest enemy of democracy is the patriarchal culture in the same way that the father is the chief of the family, that whatever he say, everybody should say yes, the dictator is the father of a nation. So we are in a country exactly when you know, the emancipation of the women goes through education. If you don't have any education, if you don't have any you know, economical ease, then you, know, you can forget your emancipation. So there's all this girl that they study and they work, etc., etc., in long term, it will give a result. At the same time, the God who created the earth, he didn't make really his job very great because he put like 85% of the oil there. And then they give a little bit to the rest of the people. So we have this oil problem that, that, that is just there. And you know, the word is, I saw it more as a unity that you know, we have considered for a too long time that you know, we can just go and you know, these are the other countries and we don't care. These other countries, one day, they, they are not happy. So we have to consider the whole situation of the world. Okay. So, you know, when I saw, you know, George Bush being re-elected, I lost my hope. When I saw he going down, you know, being 30%, I found hope again. <laughs> then I had a lot of hope when Chirac in France was against the world. Then Sarkozy got elected, I lost hope again. So I, 
Yeah. I have hope, I lose hope, you know, is a question, is a daily, is a daily thing. But, but I believe in one thing. I really, I mean truly, I don't believe, I don't believe in anything to tell you the truth. But in this one thing I believe is the education and the culture and the instruction. Not that the education and culture and instruction solve all the problem, but it helps us to be less stupid. And in life it's always better to be less stupid than more stupid. Yeah, that makes sense, no? You're listening to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. This is Sokalo Radio, the on-air home of the Sokalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, SokaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. Stay tuned to SoCalo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. Hi, I'm Steve Julian. Last week, KPCC and the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank got together for a day of fundraising, and you responded so enthusiastically, we're extending the partnership for a short time. Become a $10 a month member, and you'll also provide 50 meals to the food bank for distribution to the hungry. The more you give, the more you support KPCC and the food bank. Join kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. And thank you very much. Didn't General Motors kill the electric car? So why is it bringing it back? Toyota's doing the same thing, and they're both pulling the plug on hydrogen-fueled vehicles. I'm Pat Morrison. You'll also find out how the WPA, the Works Project Administration, changed the American landscape. The massive Depression-era program put millions of Americans to work, building roads and libraries, painting murals, and writing plays. How a busted flat nation built itself back to prosperity. It's here Monday, starting at 1 p.m. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. Talking about the women, I mean, as you said yourself, two-thirds of the degrees in Iran are given to women. The literacy rate for women in Iran approaches nearly 90%. There's a saying in, in Iran nowadays that the only men left in Iran are the women. Yes. And, and so I think putting the hope of that country in the, in the hands of the women, I think is a pretty optimistic way of looking at it. Yes, yes. And, you know, I mean, people, they, you know, when I say, for example, you know, I say, oh, why don't you make a book about the misery of Iranian women? I say, you know, Iranian women, they are not miserable. The, the, it's not that the situation is that bad for them. It's not what I'm saying. But miserable for me is somebody who doesn't 
react. These Iranian women, in any way, they, they are reacting. And saying they're miserable is the non-recognition of the battle that they have to make every day. And I just don't talk only about women. I mean, believe me, if half of the population that was the men that they were just oppressed by the other half, I would say the same thing. It's just the fact that half of a population, because of their gender, had the right to oppress the other half of the population. Mm -hmm. And no matter what direction it goes, is condemnable. We have to be equal and consider ourselves as human beings. But you know, I mean, this thing is coming, then it's something else, I mean, that is something that is education, culture, the, the, the whole culture that changed, etc., etc. Then you have the geopolitics, then you have wars, then you have things that, you know, stop a whole evolution and we have to go backward. We don't know what is happening. I don't quite understand what is happening today in this, in this world, but that is for me a very difficult thing to understand because we are creating weapons every day that, you know, if we create them, we cannot just, you know, put them, you know, somewhere and not use them. If you create them, you have to use them. That means you have to create war. So we create weapons that are extremely sophisticated, and three of them is enough to destroy the world. Okay. Everybody say we are not going to use it. Then why do we do them in the first place? Why don't we put this money on education? Just to tell you an example, the first time I came in America, to America, of course, you know, I grew up in a family that was from left, you know, America, that was the imperialist, capitalist, bad country. And of course, you know, I hated all the American, you know, down with the USA, down with the USA. I came to, the, to America, even though, you know, I was open-minded, but, you know, I was more, you know, Westerner, you know, by Che Guevara and all of that. America, bad. Okay. I came here to find good reason to hate Americans. I came here the first time with my Swedish husband. When you come to immigration, they put a stamp in your passport and you know how much time you can stay. In my passport, I received a nine-month visa. My Swedish husband, he got a two-month visa. <laughs> <laughs> and so he looked at the officer and he said, so why is it that she has a nine-month visa and I have two? And the officer said, because she's cute and you're not. <laughs> That was in 1999. 2001, I came back with him. They stopped me for two hours, you know, asking me also, do you have a nuclear weapon and all of that? And I was like, hey, I'm the same cute girl. They wouldn't listen to me. So, you know, the situation changed. But every time I came to America, I made a lots of friends. And, you know, I got really, like, slapped, you know, in my face more and more and more because the American, they were really not the way I thought. The, the fact of knowing them made me understood that, you know, they were just adorable people to the point that, you know, during the last election in America, by then I even didn't have, you know, the French passport. I was the one who was defending America in France. And my French friends, they were like, oh, you're crazy. These people, they're calling the access of evil and you defend them. And I'm like, which people are you talking about? My friend, not, none of them, they believe in this book of access of evil. That's not them. <laughs> I mean, let's also talk about this half of America that nobody ne never talk about it. But, you know, we always like, you know, to think that the other place is bad. You know, like in England, I will tell you something. Anytime it's social crisis, they start showing, you know, images of Africa when people are dying, you know, saying to this worker class in England that they're, you know, that they're really in trouble, saying, be happy. See? Right. You know, they have mosquitoes in their eyes. Be happy, you can still eat your sausage every day. This is yeah. what the way, you know, by, by making out of the other one evil, 
every year, like, oh, we are so cool and happy in our own country. And then we don't consider that we have, ourselves we have problems. And certainly what's true of Iran is also true of America, and I would say most countries of the world, that all, there is all, a all huge chasm between the people and the government. And also the way that the information is treated everywhere. I remember, you know, in France, they were showing after, you know, France say no to the war. It's the way we saw the America in, you know, in, in the TV, that was, you know, this French bottle of wine in the street, pouring the wine, and <laughs> everybody was making freedom keys and was eating freedom fries and the, everything, you know, everything. The French connection was called freedom connection. Everything was, <laughs> became to free. So we came here. It was not like that at all. You know, maybe that was two jerks did that, you know, somewhere, but, you know, it was not like everywhere the people, they were doing that. Those jerks were in the Senate, actually. <laughs> they always are. <laughs> You're listening to SoColor Radio. Now it's time for the audience to ask questions of graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi. My name is Todd Kerner, and thank you for a very rich and thought-provoking film. One scene in particular struck me when the children are chasing the boy on the bike with the nails. Mm -hmm. It was very reminiscent of a scene from Speed Racer or Astro Boy. So I got to thinking, to what extent were other styles of animation influencing your approach to this movie? Well, actually, to tell you the truth, we, we didn't have so much reference in animation, even though, you know, this scene, you know, can be related to some animated movie, but in animated movie, kids, they're never mean. They're always nice. That was the whole difficulty of this, of this project was that, because, you know, what could we say to our animators? Make some Disney, take Savory, Miyazaki. It's not that I don't like these things, but that was not to what we wanted to say as a story. That was an adult story, etc., etc. It was not suitable. So we had to create this animation. You know, we wanted an animation that looked like real life and was subtle at the same time, not really. So our references came much more, you know, from German Expressionism, from Italian New Realism, or many other movies, actually. So it was really uh, the, the real movie that they were much more our influences. Uh, hi there. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, following the success of your books and or your film, how has that been officially or unofficially received in Iran? Well, I hear uh, lots of different things, actually. I mean, officially, at the time that the movie was in Cannes, uh, they made a big deal, actually, out of it. It wasn't such a big deal, because that was the Ministry of Culture that sent a letter to the French embassy in Iran. It was not even to the Cannes Festival, that they were not satisfied, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that was that. Then, unofficially, I know that the DVD of the movie came out December 27th, and December 30th, a friend of mine called me from Iran, and he told me, guess what, what? I have the DVD of your movie with Persian subtitle in three days. They translated it. They put the subtitle, and it was on sale, which was very odd for me because, you know, the, you know suddenly me, who was going to the black market buying Jekyll Maxon and Iron Maiden, <laughs> I was the Jekyll Maxon myself, so I liked it a lot. So, so, but the reaction so far, it's my friends that call me and they say, but my friends tell me everybody loves you, etc. But they're my friends, you know, they won't say the contrary. So I don't know. I don't know, really. What about Iranians in the diaspora? Have they been responding to this film? 
really very good, very good. People, they have been extremely nice to me. People, they have been really encouraging me. I'm extremely proud. Well, I saw just this one bad guy, but you know what I mean? I would even not talk about him because, you know, if you have 2,000 nice people, why bother talking about him? Uh, and, you know, people, they have been really, really nice. Even if we were not completely, you know, agreeing on point of views, et cetera, et cetera, because many people, they say, oh, why did you say this thing about the Shah of Iran, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I can tell you something also, is that, you know, the Shah of Iran was a dictator, and, you know, he came to power by, by, by coup d'etat, et cetera, et cetera. But is this idea that the whole regime was completely rotten, I realized that like four years ago, when that was this old minister of Shah, the royalist in Paris, that invited me to a cafe because in a way, they thought that I was their enemy. I'm the enemy of nobody, and I'm the enemy of everybody at the same time, so you know. And they saw that I was not aggressive, and I saw really a couple of them that they were great men, so you know, this idea that all this regime was completely bad, this is not true neither. But people, I say, I, 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 even with this kind of thinking, they, they, were, they were extremely open-minded. They were, they were really nice. Yes, um, I was uh, really touched by those moments where you talked to God in the movie and just really uh, had these moments. I, I had moments like that when I was a child as well. Do you still have moments like that? And also, that final time you talked to God in, in the scene where you were affected by the depression, drugs, or whatever you were taking. Who was the other guy? Um, the other guy is Karl Marx. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I thought it was Marx. And then, um, but do you still have moments like that, or is that still a part of you? Well, of course it's, it, of course it's a part of me, in a way that, you know, you know the, the, the human being, I mean, our, our life is like the, the Greek tra- tragedy. I mean, anybody who has a decent brain, has to become cynical because life is just, you know, a disillusion after disillusion after disillusion. So at the moment that you have a little bit of sensitivity or a brain, is written like the Greek tra- tragedy that the result of that is to become cynical. But since it is written, I just completely refuse that. Despite of all this disillusion, I have to keep the stars in my eyes. I have to keep this hope and this, this God, this, this very sincere and innocent relationship for me that, that that is what i what i call having the stars in my eyes until my last whisper i will keep that and if one day i become cynical i hope that this day i will die because then it doesn't worth it anymore you were very religious as a little girl weren't you you wanted to be a prophet yes i you know you know children they don't have a very good brain <laughs> <laughs> i changed my mind I mean, for me, already being responsible for me is a very big deal, you know, then, you know, being responsible for whole people, no, no. I had a bit of an, perhaps an inverse relationship in that I, I was raised in Iran and uh, left in late 1978, so the book and the movie had a very interesting effect on my past, and something that you didn't really mention was the, in the film, or the, was the hostage crisis, and that was a very big thing for me coming back and noticing that there was such a tremendous amount of propaganda here that I didn't understand at all because I knew the people. And I wanted to know just how, you, why you left that out of the film and, and how that actually affected 
Well, well, to tell you the truth, I tried, you know, to remember the way I felt the things when I was a child, you know, not having an analytic point of view of an older woman who looks at her life. So I tried to remember how was I when I was 10. You know, the hostage taking was a big deal here. In Iran, it was not a big deal because first it was not our hostages, for sure. But also, you know, they had been liberated all these people. So it was, you know, this hostage taking, you have to understand, I mean, people, they forget that we had made, you know, something in Iran, we liberated, we nationalized our oil in 51. This temptation of, you know, having our, possessing our own oil finished by a coup d'etat made by the by CIA and the British. People, they forget that the CIA was working with Savak. They, people, all of that they forget. So the time that the American, they left, you know, they were not extremely popular in South America either. In all these places that, you know, the, you know, the, the, the American the, the government, I'm talking just about the government, I'm not mixing it with, with people, they have been very much supportive of all sorts of dictatorship. So, you know, the way that I lived it personally, it was not a big deal. So I would not talk about it and pretend it was a big deal, you know, to please the people. I just tried to be as true as possible. As I said it in the book, the only concern that we had by, by this hostage taking is that to get the American visa, you had to go to another country. That was our problem. That was it. Can I ask you, were you in Iran because your dad worked for the oil industry? No, they were nice no. people. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, look at him, you see. He's so sweet. <laughs> no, it was, another, it was another business that had to do with bringing communications systems in. Yes, that's it. CIA, that's what that means, right? <laughs> Communications systems. Um, the musical score of the film was really remarkable, and I was wondering if you could talk about how you worked with the composer in the film. Well, the composer happened to be a friend of, f- friend of us. I mean, this whole movie was, we were able to do it because both Vincent and I, we come from French underground milieu, so we knew all these people that they, they were friends with us that work for working. So, you know, this person who is a great musician, he started actually composing the music before actually the movie started by just explanation that it's going to be like this and like that. And you are very true, you're right to, to talk about that because the, the, the score in this, in this movie is like the fifth character. is the cement between everything. And it's a good score because you don't notice it all the time. But, there, but then he, it's present all the time. So, you know, many sequences, we made the composition over the music and not vice versa. So it was a very long work, you know. He worked, like, for two, three years. He created five times more music than what we needed, and we could pick into it. But that was just maquette. And then at the end, you know, when we knew which music we wanted, then, of course, you know, he made it with an orchestra, etc., etc. That was the way it was made. You've been listening to graphic novelist and filmmaker Marjan Satrapi with Reza Aslan. 
This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenzhol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Programming is supported by...